Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and I reckon this is episode 252. I had a chat with a guy called Mike McKeon. He's actually known as Mike Blue or Dr. Blue. He's an English uh, singer, songwriter, and poet and musician, uh, but he lives in Wellington. Now, um, I interviewed his uh, his wife last year, uh, Samina Zera. She's an actor and a, uh, a performer and a writer and all sorts of things. And uh, I'll, I'll include a link to that uh, in this if you missed that episode. But she came into my house and sat down in the room where I do the podcast and she said, oh, you have to meet my husband. He He's just like you. All he cares about... Uh, Um, Well, not all he cares about, but what he cares about is music and books, poetry and song. And so I did meet Mike and uh, I realised I'd seen him perform before and I thought he was great, a really great poet and um, he plays music as well. I then got him to to, um, do some songs and some poetry at my book launch. And so we've hung out a few times and I always thought he'd be a great person to have a chat with because um, not only is he passionate about this stuff, but he has the COVID story of moving to New Zealand just before the lockdown and and living here without his... um, full residency and without his, uh, his all of his musical equipment and basically just sort of deciding well this is probably going to be the place to, to be um, and then of course he has his whole past of growing up and living in the UK which is a scene I don't know about so he got to see, well you'll hear it in this but when I talked to him I had just done a feature on RNZ about Kate Bush and he tells me yeah I actually went to that tour of life in 1979 I was a teenager myself and I got to see Kate Bush perform so I was just like wow this is amazing so he's got some great stories about the music that he's seen and heard and been part of and then um, you know we talk about poetry and books and music and all the things that that drive uh, him um, as as they do me um, he's been touring around the country you can catch him there'll be a link to his website with his dates he's, he's doing lots of shows he also busks if you're in Wellington you might have seen him who him down by the waterfront Uh, he does a lot of busking and um, yeah just a great guy to chat to Uh, there's a little bit of his music in this you'll hear a little bit of his guitar playing throughout and then a song at the end Uh, this is me talking to Dr Blue Mike McKeon I always like to sort of um, preface these by talking about how I know someone and um, really my first indication of you was actually meeting and interviewing your wife so Samina came here um, to plug a show that then got cancelled <laughs> because of the um, lockdown that's right and it's now uh, happening next and year and it's now yeah 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 and um and uh in that conversation she basically said you'll have to meet my husband he'll come into this room and he'll love it because it's filled with music and books uh he likes what you he likes what you like yeah. and um and then we've since met you in fact played some songs and did some poems at my poetry book launch that's right. so we've had a, and we've bumped into each other in the street and we've hung out so we're getting to know each other yeah. but i don't know your full story but i know that you've um been a performer of music and words for quite a long time Pretty much my whole life. Yeah, and that and and it exactly that it drives you, that, yeah. it's, that these have been your passions. And you find yourself living in New Zealand now. You've been here for a year. Yes. But you'd also been, um, you'd vis- you know, you'd visited. You'd been here a That's few right. times. So what's your, so how, from your perspective, what's the connection with New Zealand? How did that come about? Well, again, we have to go back to my wife, yeah. Selena. Yeah. Uh, she came here in 2016 to do a four-night run of one of her shows. She basically jumped off the New Zealand tour, uh, the Australia tour, mm. and came here for four nights. Absolutely fell in love with New Zealand. I was at home writing a show which we brought the following year called Irish Jimmy. 
And she came home after being away for about six weeks, walked through the door, and never mind, hello, darling, I missed you. It was, we're moving to New Zealand. <laughs> and I said, you've only been here four days. And she said, no, you've got to come and visit. You'll get it. Yeah. And we arrived the following year with four shows. Um, we got off the plane. It's a two-day flight. I was jet-lagged and exhausted. And we basically had a shower and went out and started promoting. And I was doing a radio promotion that morning. I had a TV appearance the, I think, the second day we were here. And I'm walking literally to the, get the bus to the station, to the airport. And I'm walking down Cuba Street. It's my second day I'm in, in, uh, in Wellington. Mm. And there's a bloke chasing me down the street calling my name. <laughs> and I didn't recognise him. And I, we, 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 you know, in our business, mm. we meet a lot of people. So mm. I, I, obviously we, we knew each other. He runs up and he looks at me and he realised I didn't recognise him. He said, it's Roddy from the radio station. I said, oh, Roddy, I'm really sorry. I'm really jet-lagged. I'm sorry. He said, don't worry about it, mate. Let's go and grab a coffee. And I thought... Oh, that's how it works here in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. You meet someone once and that's it. Everybody just is really friendly. It's very easy going. Um, and yeah, no, I got it. it. You know, second day I was here. Mm. It didn't take four days for me. Mm. And then we basically planned to move here eventually and base ourselves in New Zealand, have a home in New Zealand and a small place in Scotland so that we could have access to the Edinburgh Fringe. And also, I'm usually quite busy during the summer in the UK. Mm, mm. So I, we would live the dream of basically living in perpetual summer. Mm. Um, the story carries on. Samina got a job here. Um, I came over for a holiday um, just over a year ago. COVID happened, and that's another story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's and, why I'm here. And that's why you're here. And, and um, you, like a lot of people, had... Well... You had gigs and things booked and ready to go, and COVID wiped you out, basically, if you'd been still in the UK, right? Well, basically, I looked in my diary um, in July of 2019 and saw that I was booked pretty much from the beginning of from the beginning of May through to the beginning of October in 2020. I had four projects to work on, two tours, mm. uh, and 2020 was going to be my busiest year for six years. Um, so I thought, well... Um, Samina's in New Zealand, I need a holiday, I've got some writing I wanted to do. So I came over here for a holiday, and then two phone calls, and that was the end of 2020 for mm -hmm. me. Everything got cancelled. Mm. Fortunately, my flight got cancelled the day I was due to return. I mean, that's another... <laughs> and you were, you were living out here, and in fact, I think when I first met you, it was still the case that you were basically waiting for your guitars to turn up. Still. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so you were living out here, twiddling your thumbs, going, well... It's better being here than over there yeah. in terms of the government response to things. Yes, absolutely. And um, there's not, you know, if you can't play gigs and can't do anything, it's better and safer being in a, a newish space. Yes. But you couldn't actually play the guitar for quite some time. Either. Well, I, I came over with one, but I can't, I can't tour with just one yeah, guitar. Yeah, it yeah. just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, I say, I, I mean, I always say when I'm performing, you know, thank you for the work visa, which I now have. But also, it's great to be in a country that's run by adults. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Well, let's go back to when you lived in a country that's not run by adults. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and tell me a bit about where you grew up and what was going on for you as a kid. Right. Um, I grew up in and around London. Uh, my father, my father's career changed quite regularly. I mean, it developed. Mm. I mean, he left school at 16 with no qualifications. By the time he was 30, he'd qualified as an accountant. So in 10 years, well, 16 years, he went, he had three children and a career. Uh, he had one nervous breakdown, poor sod. Um, so we lived in, in and around London. We lived in Romford. We lived in Hackney. We lived in Croydon. We lived in Watford. So we were always around London. So I always grew up around London as a teenager, had access to 
to music, particularly music in mm. London. Um, had a fairly stand up bringing mum and dad stayed together they liked each other which was lovely um, I, I now realise what a privilege upbringing it was mm. because um, I grew up being loved unconditionally which is a very special experience so first time I had a guitar in my hands I was probably three maybe four I had a little clown guitar and I broke all the strings playing it my dad realised I liked it so he bought me a proper guitar a few years later and then I went to a primary school that was run by a couple of old, um, I suppose it's a rather old-fashioned term, spinster, not very appropriate mm. these days. Mm. But they were single women, um, and, but they were huge musicians. They were very heavily involved in the English Folk Dance and Music Society. So I was dancing in the Royal Albert Hall when I was eight or nine doing sword dances. Um, going off to, to guitar workshops in, in obscure places in the UK as part of school trips. And again, I took these things as normal, but I was immersed in, in music from a very early age. Mm. And as a result of that, my headmistress was great friends with a band called The Spinners, who were a folk band from mm. Liverpool. Mm. And they had their own TV specials. They were, they were quite a big deal at the time. And they wanted to make an album with a room full of children. So basically, me and my classmates were transported into the EMI studios in, at Marble Arch, which was a phenomenal experience. I was 10 years old. Mm. And the spinners basically set up in, in this big studio, and they played songs, and we sang along, and they read us, told us some stories. And they, they produced an album. Um, we had, there was a single came off. It got to number 76 in the charts. <laughs> it was called The Fox. But... Again, it's very difficult to quantify what, what influence that had because I then went into my teenage years already being able to play the guitar. I started writing songs and then that developed. I was very heavily involved in the folk music scene. Mm. We used to play at hoedowns uh, and I was started busking in my late teens. I, I love busking. I, I still do it. You still do it, yeah. Um, and, but I've always had the bug to perform. So that's, that's to university. I didn't spend a lot of time studying at university. I was too busy being a muso. Mm. And I, I had a residency in one of the big hotels in Brighton very early on. Um, so I was earning. Uh, and that just basically, I, I never really got interested in the studying. I mean, I did finish eventually after taking a year off and traveling into Africa and around Europe. Mm. Um, and again, gathering what I now realize was a lot of source material for some of my songwriting. Mm-hmm. And where does the, I mean, poetry as a component of songwriting and the song, you know, songs people listen to, the music um, that people love, but where does poetry as its own distinct thing come into your life? Well, again, that goes back to my primary school. Mm. I mean, we were forever writing poetry. And again, it was normal. Mm. So it was, a, it was a routine I'd got into. Um, it was for me as a teenager, it was, a, it was, my, it was my retreat. Um, I mean, I like to think I was a, a completely unique character who went through all the angst of teenage years and everybody, no one else felt the way I did. Mm. And of course, you realise everybody's going through <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suddenly started bumping into people who felt like that. And those, those were the people I was writing with, either music or performing with. You, you start to find your, your, your family, your fanart. I think that's mm. is, is, the, mm. is, the, is the Maori word. Mm. So I was right. I've always written and performed. Um, I got really interested in writing and possibly publishing poetry when I got into my 30s and at that time I was having children so my, my ex-partner and I had three children in under five years so from basically the 90s I spent raising children I was busy mm. I did I was involved in a, a duo called the baby boomers which grew into the band I, I then fronted for 10 years 
but in the in the 90s it was time was a was a very precious commodity with small children and every saturday morning i negotiated with my ex-partner i used to go and sit in the library for two hours and that was my escape and that's when i started writing seriously seriously writing mm. poetry now uh, that reached a point where i was invited to read at a festival um and stop writing as a result because the festival was a very I suppose it was a very literary event. Mm. And it was a very sensible, a very serious event. And people read serious poetry very seriously to each other. Mm. And I thought there's something missing. Because when I'd grown up in the late 70s, listening to people like Linton Quasi Johnson, Tipper Naptali from Birmingham. Yeah, John Cooper the, Clark. John yeah. Cooper Clark. Um, and, you know, who were, who were using... I mean, John Cooper Clark started reading poetry to stop the, the punk fans from throwing bottles at yeah, him. I mean, that's yeah, the story. Yeah. But I listened to Tipper Naptali from Birmingham, mm. who used to recite his poetry. I mean, he was a, a rap poet, mm. one of the early ones, and you would dance to him. You, would, mm. you couldn't sit still as he recited. It was beautiful. So I went from that sort of performative experience in my very formative years, yeah. and I hit my 30s, and, I'm go and I suddenly find myself, I tripped over what I call the, the more academic poetry world, which has its place, don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, it's no, not my I, place. I know exactly the experience you're talking about. I mean, I, I was, you know, off seeing Sam Hunt and, and the performative poets, and then when I came to university and started going to poetry readings by poets that were you know affiliated to the university press very good work but it's so silent in between and it's so serious yeah. and that has its place oh absolutely but um yeah it didn't feel i didn't get the warmth from that that i got from the experience of even just an open mic yeah. with people that you don't, you know, that aren't names at all, but no. there's something special in their delivery and there's something honest in their word. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the I mean, my, my, my poetry journey hit the thirties and I stopped almost entirely. I didn't stop writing completely. Mm. I was writing and putting things away in a cupboard. Um, and then, but, but by the end of the nineties, I was back my children had grown, I had a bit more time, so I was performing a lot again. Mm -hmm. I, I was I was the front man of a band called Dr. Blue and the Prescription. I was also a solo artist. I've, mm. I've always combined something fairly big with other stuff, um, and I was still writing um, my what I call my singer-songwriter kind of material. Um, but then, in terms of the poetry, I tripped over what I describe as the modern spoken word scene, um, not in London, but in Brighton. Hmm. Um, Samina and I moved to Brighton in 2014, I think it was, 2015, and fell into this amazing scene which is in Brighton. You can go out seven nights a week to an open mic night, and some nights there'll be two poetry nights, hmm. and there's a poetry night for everybody. And if you want to read your more academic stuff, there was a, there was a, night, there was a night for that. But there was some phenomenal talent. So it's like stand-up comedy in New York uh, or abs LA. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was one called Shine So Hard, uh, where I developed the the chapbook mm. uh, called Sin, um, I would turn up with two or three new poems, and, I, and they would give me the chance to read them and take feedback from the audience. Um, mm. I, I was working on a show called Mosaic, which we're hoping to bring here mm. to New Zealand next year. If we can bring um, Shobu Kapoor, who's a friend of ours, mm. who's an actress, who's also a writer, and she and I spent a year developing a spoken word show. Um, and we're hoping to bring that over here. But Sh Shobu and I would go to Shine So Hard um, and perform our material, and, and they would give us a 10 or 15-minute spot. Mm. We also had a lot of support from the Poetry Cafe 
in London, which had a very good night on a Sunday. And we would ring them up and say, can we have a 15 minute slot? We've got the next segment of the show written. And we would turn up and do segments. And again, the audience would give us feedback. Mm. So as a, as a creative artist, it was a wonderful opportunity. So we have these two fabulous venues, very eclectic poetry. Mm. You know, you might have someone reading a, a, a beautifully crafted sonnet and you'd have someone shouting into a megaphone mm. and that would be all part of the same night and it was all equally valid and fascinating. And it's cool how that has really, yeah, I mean, I mean, we even have that here now. And, I, and I, when I say we even have that here now, I'm thinking back to 20 years ago when mm. I started going to open mics regularly as sometimes a performer but mostly just as an observer mm. and the poetry was very safe and in the same sort of style and yeah. now you know any session you go to you're going to get and we were both reading recently at uh, poetry at the fringe a month or so ago and i've had a conversation with someone else who was a, a part of that too and i thought that particular lineup was extraordinary for an open mic yeah. that that the range yes. and as i have said the only way I could put it was no one was shit. Yeah. And you kind of expect that someone is going to be a little bit shit yeah. because it's open mic. Yeah. Um, but everyone was good. Now, not everything was 100% to my taste, nor should it be. No. But I couldn't fault the energy level yeah. and the ideas that were there. You know, yeah. everyone brought something. And I thought, man, that's amazing. And that's just one of the regular open mics yeah. we have here. Yeah. Then there was the guest who was extraordinary, yeah. of course. But, you know, like that was an amazing... And, yeah, it's just that's the level that we've got to here through the development of what you're talking about, these these places in the world where you can go and see it a couple of times a night or several times a week. Yeah. And the thing that makes me most excited is that the fact is that these these nights are full of young poets. Mm. Um, and it's and it's not the traditional lineup that you would expect in terms of gender or in mm. or, or indeed culture. And mm. they're they're very rich nights and you're getting huge inputs from different cultural experiences, um, different gender experiences. Um, and I I, I, I I mean for me, I mean it helps to it keeps me going. Yeah, the barrier of entry is there if people still think of poetry the way they might think of classical music or jazz, yeah. but really there is no barrier of entry. You're just going there to see people um, explore who they are and how they see the world through some words on stage, right? Everyone's bringing a different game. And I think what the other thing that also I'm always on the lookout for for a night is that there's an audience. Mm. Because if these nights are attracting people who just want to listen, okay, there's usually two or three people who are trying to work out whether they're going to get up and do something, yeah, and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. But these places are very inclusive, incredibly supportive, and safe places, mm, both mm. as individuals but also as artists. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. we know, I mean, I don't want to labour the point too heavily, particularly when you're starting out, it can be quite a, t you know, quite a terrifying experience getting yeah, up and say, yeah. apart from the fact that there's an awful lot of people don't know how to use a microphone yeah, or yeah. a microphone stand. Yeah. And all of a sudden something happens or it's at the wrong height, it completely throws you. And, and so, yeah, no, I think that, that a well-run spoken word or open mic night, mm -hmm. you know, with someone who's sympathetic and understanding of those, those concerns is a very, very interesting thing to watch. And you get, I mean, I love watching people develop. Mm. Even, even in, you know, over a period of several months, you can watch someone who said, this is the first time I've ever read in public, you know, and three months later, they're thinking about doing a fringe show. For yeah. me, our job is being done every day. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what we should be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when poetry left you for a bit, it didn't leave you as a reader? Like you've always absorbed it? No, no, I've always it? read. I've yeah. always read. Um, yeah. It's one of the things I'm missing. I've got quite a, quite a large collection of poetry and spoken mm. word that I've collected over the years 
Um, I've got very eclectic tastes um, and, and if you were to ask me something like what's your favourite poet I wouldn't be able to answer mm. uh, or poem. Um, I, I, have, I have a collection. I, I was a teacher for a long time. That's what the day job was for while, while the kids were growing up. And I had a wonderful collection because at that time there, there was a charity that put poems on the underground on our tube mm, station. Mm. And there were these, and I, I used to love them. And my aunt bought me the compilation of all of the poems or all of the excerpts. I, I had that. I had that. And I don't have that anymore, and I wish I did. I've got both because there was <laughs> yeah, a second one that came yeah, out. Yeah, right. I've worn out the first one's falling to pieces because mm. I used to I used to keep it in my room. I was a science teacher, and I used to keep it in my room. and And the kids got to know my love of this. And so read us a poem. You know, if we had ten minutes at the end of a lesson or something, mm. you know, they they would say, "I'll oh, read us a poem." And I, that's, again, my work my work here is done. There's mm. a kids, bunch of kids coming to learn science, and we're reading poetry. Um, and I wore that book out, and and the kids had favourites. Um, uh, and so there's probably a few in there that are, mm. are fairly top of my list because I've read them so many times. I put, I, I mean, a lot of our books are not in any order in particular, or just order for us. But I put all the poems in a couple of shelves recently, yeah. and you know, there's a few and there's some good things, and I'm still buying them, new new collections. But it's made me realise and regret the ones that I got rid of. Yeah. In some cases, it was nice you give you give it to someone, oh, yeah. and that's cool. Yeah. But and other times I just went, oh, we don't have enough room. It's time to take some books to the second-hand shop. And there's a few that I regret getting rid of. And I was writing a thing last night, actually, about, you know, Roger McGuff, who I love. Oh, yeah. um, but there's one book of his in particular, and it's a smaller selected poems, not the big collected one. Mm. And I just wish I had that. You know, it's yeah. like having a favourite greatest hits album yeah you know and then the artist they put out a big double disc and it's not the same because no, that, that particular <laughs> finite collection yeah. is what you crave that's right yeah and so i was just thinking about that and going well you know if i ever see that book again i'm going to buy it again it'll yeah. be around yeah. you might even one day funnily enough i might end up in wellington getting the copy that i donated to a store it's quite possible well, these things have a habit of going around mm, um, mm. but i take your point about books and bookshelves my unfortunately I, I share my life now with a woman who adores books and reading um and our flat in brighton we one of the things that we invested in when we took when we bought the flat was having bookcases installed mm. i mean my, my attitude to, to, to book ownership and bookcases is you can't have too many books you can be just you don't have enough sort of shelf, shelfing space yeah, you just yeah. Have to build some more yeah which is what we've done i mean these these were built uh, these are lovely my dad built those this is my idea of yeah heaven. yeah my yeah. dad everyone comments on them actually my dad um built those for us um sort of a year or so after we were in here yeah. and there's some more in another room and uh we're probably just about at capacity but uh in terms of there really isn't anywhere else that we could have and so that's why we are starting to recycle a little bit and go mm. well these ones we've read and loved these can go new ones can come in but in fact in fact that shelf was added after just recently yeah. so that's cool so that's yeah. i think we're at final that's the you, final kind of space so music wise what were you you know what has what's driven you you know you you're i see you i mean I, i've seen you play um and i've seen you play in the sense also of walking past you in the street lately and seeing you busk yeah um and i know you you've got a passion for the blues and you talk about the blues has that always been a big driver I think I get asked this a lot because I'm primarily known, particularly in the UK, as a blues singer. Mm. Um, and the answer to that is I grew up in a family where my father was playing a lot of jazz. He was traveling to the States and bringing records back. I didn't realize how much music I'd absorbed growing up. 
my parents are also huge rock and roll fans. Mm. And when I went to my grandmother's, all of my father's uncles had their record collections at my grandmother's because she had the gramophone. So throughout my life, I grew up listening to popular music, jazz, classical music, which I love. Um, but blues was always there. The defining moment, and it is a defining moment, when I realised what it was I, uh, that, that really floated my boat, shall we say. I was in a record shop in 1979 in Brighton. I was a student and I was flicking through. It's an old, I mean, people still have this love of flicking through mm. records in, mm. in boxes, looking for something, something new. And the guy around the shop was playing a track off of an album to a young woman and he was trying to sell it to her as an obscure Bob Dylan recording. Now, Bob Dylan played a very average harmonica on this recording. I've never rated Bob Dylan's harmonica playing. He's a great songwriter, but he, don't play, he can't play the old. Anyway, and I heard the track that was playing, and it was Memphis Slim and Victoria Spivey playing a duet, which is, if you don't like what I'm doing, go tell your other man. And, I rem and, and that was the moment I heard that and something about that song resonated with me. I have learned that song and played that song for 40 years. And it's in most of the, the live blues sets I do. Mm. I've never recorded it because it's not my song, mm. but I've always played it. So for that was the, the, the real focus in 1979 of the blues. Now then it sort of drifted. I was still doing a lot of singer-songwriting. I was touring on, on, on folk venues on the South Coast. I was, this again, I told you, I, I didn't do a lot of studying. Mm, mm. I was too busy performing. Um, and then I bumped into my ex-partner's flatmate. Her boyfriend was a guitarist and he stopped playing for about 10 years. He was a little older than me. And every time we sat around a table, we would complain that we missed playing live because I hadn't played live for a couple of years. And we started playing. And he loved the blues and I suddenly realised that I'd, I had all these songs that I knew that I'd learned. Uh, and that's how this duet started. That duet ran for 10 years and that was the, the only piece of live performing I did during the 90s. Was he and I used to rehearse once a month and perform once a month. And he also had a young family. So mm. it was a perfect way for us to keep that, that, that drive going. Mm. And we played quite a lot. Um, we played mainly in London and in Ireland. That's another story. But so then that turned into a blues band and in, in, in 2000 we formed Dr. Blue and the Prescription and that went off quite well. And we had residencies at Ain't Nothing But, which is the big blues venue in London. We were playing regularly on the London circuit. We were playing in Ireland um, and that was going very well. Uh, we had a number of lineups. Uh, like most regular bands, uh, we had three drummers and two bass players on speed dial mm. because good drummers and bass players tend to be busy. Uh, yeah, and many yeah. of them are professionals and they're working in lots of bands but it worked really well and it, I mean we, we recorded we had a live album we recorded a studio album uh, there's, someone sent me some video footage that was taken during the recording of the album which I've got somewhere um, and so that was where the blues was now in 2010 I was getting very itchy I, my, my, I was getting the band project has done everything I thought it was going to do I was writing a lot more on my own um, and I decided I wanted to go solo so I left the band and went to India with Samina and my kids and wrote an album which is Heaven Bound and I've been touring that more or less the last 10 years I've since written another album and that's what we call the ill-fated Silent Man album um, and that's another story and if we've got time I'll tell you the story <laughs> about why that album was never brought out mm -hmm. yeah uh, go on Let's okay well ba basically I mean I I 
this there's a there's a there's a there's a health check here there's a health warning young performers get your hearing aid get your hearing protectors and wear them my hearing has gone because i spent too many years in noisy bands so i went into the studio with a very dear friend of mine a fabulous musician and producer called paul and we recorded the follow-up album to human to heaven bound it was a big extravaganza with drums and bass mm. and violin and keyboards and flute it was a it was a bit of an opus the problem was i hadn't had my hearing loss prescribed and he had a cancer scare um and he had a very serious illness which meant that his hearing was was affected so the pair of us were mixing and recording an album and neither of us could hear properly and we didn't realize because it wasn't serious so serious that we would have noticed the difference so i then uh, about it took about a year and a half to write this we juggling various projects i then went in uh, paul had mixed the whole album mm. uh, uh had had, had had uh, mixed it down done everything with it and he, we had the final listening to it i paid him and came home with a finished album and i put it on the stereo at home and my wife's i won't tell you exactly what my wife <laughs> said was have you signed off on this and i said yes it's, i'm really happy with it she said you can't hear the vocals and i then took it to uh, various people all said why you know, are you going to mix this <laughs> And then it turned out my, my hearing was going, Paul's hearing had, had been affected. And it wasn't as simple as, I mean, we, I even tried to take the individual tracks because the album was recorded on tape. So we downloaded individual tapes onto a digital system to try and remix it. But because of the, what, the mixing that was done while we were recording was off because, mm. of, because of both of our hearings. Mm. It's neither of our fault, but neither of us knew what was going on. <laughs> so the, even the original, we couldn't remix the re, and we couldn't remaster it. So the album will never come out. I sort of think, uh, in a way, the uh, true sign of um, <clears throat> a lifelong artist is having an abandoned project, you know, a, 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 a finished, finite, but unreleased project. You know, somewhere there's got to be a book that you didn't want out or that no one wanted but you liked or an album that's, you know, that's that's a part of the story isn't it well i hope i mean yeah i mean i, I, I think that's that's probably true and i think i know most of the artists i know have got you know i've got a play yeah. or a book in a in a drawer somewhere. i think you should have too because if you're only releasing what you're creating you're not you know no one's actually that good no you know no one's actually that good and so when we when we listen to these things like uh bob dylan's bootleg series there are some extraordinary things on there where you're like Man, why didn't that make the album? Yeah. But there's also some shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, of course yeah. there is. Oh, yeah. And that's an artist reaching and yeah. trying and failing, which is important. And, yeah. and it's a very important part of the creative process. Yeah. Because the, the only way you're ever going to explore the, the extent of whatever creativity or talent that you may have been mm. given or you may have acquired is to discover where it begins and ends. As is another part of that, another version of that is bombing on stage, right? Like having a shit gig. I mean, I can I can still remember, and I still have hives when I think about it. I once I I want me and my me and my mate John Dron, who was an amazing jazz singer, we were both students, and we heard about a hotel that wanted a, a resident musician for Sunday nights. It was a nice earner, mm. and that, but we had to audition, and we turned up with recorded tapes to play to the guy to get into the audition audition, and he listened to my tape and went, oh, I really like that. So I got into the audition and my mate John had recorded something in those days on an old tape recorder and it sounded rubbish. Um, and he went, I will give it a go. And it wasn't a very good recording. Mm. I sang my audition 
off. I didn't sing a note in key. The mm. whole I was so nervous. I couldn't sing in pitch. And it was embarrassing. And my mate John's sitting in front of me. It's all right, mate. You're fine. You know, you're, 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 you know, you're a brilliant singer. And, the, and it got worse. And I, I mean, this guy said, thank you very much for coming. Uh, and that will let you know. And John got up and was a brilliant singer <laughs> and completely stormed it and got the job. Mm. Thank God. Mm. Because I was rubbish. But to have that experience, I was, I mean, it was, I was 21, 22. I thought I was a musical genius. Mm. And I walked off that stage and went and hid. And, and I had a, a bit of a quiet cry thinking, what on earth are you doing? Mm, but mm. you need to have those experiences. Yeah, I sort of think, um, you know, that that experience has lost a little bit of pe- on people these days because they, I mean, you know, you, you were talking to me before we started recording about the fact that one of the things you love about going to a lot of open mics is seeing young talent there. Yeah. But... There is also uh, an opportunity now um, for people to just release material from their bedroom or from a recording studio and get a following without ever having played live. And then they might, when that struggle happens, they're not prepared for it. You know, they've got to go away and learn how to play live. Yeah. And, and that's just a different thing. Like, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that it has to be the other way, but I do think that there's something of value in and having to earn your live audience and having to prove yourself. Oh, I, I think so. And I, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing as I've got older is occasionally I trip over a young artist who might need a little bit of encouragement and some help. I mean, I used to run an open mic blues jam in London about 20 years ago. And this young man come in, who I, I won't name, who was he's, he's brilliant, brilliant guitarist. Who obviously he was about sixteen, had learned everybody's riffs from Eric Clapton all the way through to, you know, anybody you care to mention, mm. Van Halen. He could do it all. Mm. Uh, technically brilliant. Mm. I wouldn't want to listen to it for more than about thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. And got him up on stage, and realised that he was very, very good. Um, and I basically, uh, me and a friend who was there, sent him round all the best guitarists that we knew on the blues circuit in London mm. and said, you're going to go round, you're going to keep your mouth shut because he was quite lippy, what's it? I'm not going to tell you what it is because it would be unfair. <laughs> but anyway, he was a young man who was full of the joys of youth mm. and he sat down with about four or five of the best guitarists in London and they basically took him through how to do that and said, just keep playing, you need stage time. You know, you need to learn how to play. You know, stop make eye contact with the audience. You know, well, they, these are all, stagecraft it's called. Um, and yeah, and I, I think, but that, that what worries me about what's happening in the UK at the moment is a lot of the venues that would offer opportunities mm. like that are closing now. Mm. And I do worry because you're right. You these days you can self-produce. You know, and there's, there's there's something wonderful about that. Don't get me wrong. That's no, amazing. no, I, I think yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. very important. Yeah. I mean, and empowering and and you know this old archaic system of having to prove yourself in some old white guy in a suit or whatever yeah. is the decider yeah. all of that's bullshit yeah. but um yeah runs on the board still in terms of performing right yeah. like that that that's also a thing yeah i mean it was there's a there's a very interesting anecdote about frank zappa who was asked about the music business in the 60s and he said the best thing about the music business in the 60s was that most of these record companies were owned by these old fellas who didn't recognise, know or understand what the music was that they were listening to. Mm. They were only worried about whether it might make some money. Yeah. So they used to, they would quite often meet people and go, well, we'll you know, we'll give you a, a lump of money to develop something and see how it goes. And they had no interest whatsoever in the music. And they said the biggest problem in the music business in the late 60s was that record companies started employing successful musicians 
who 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 apparently knew what the young folks wanted to listen to and you saw a, 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 in many respects a homogenization of music for quite a while which didn't really change in many respects until the 70s when punk came along mm-hmm. which blew everything out of the water mm. because those rec- those record companies executives didn't see it coming didn't and, and it was only after they started that the independents started producing them that they suddenly realized that, that the young people stopped listening to what they had been listening to and that the music had changed but i think that happens that happens every three or four years anyway mm, i think mean, it's mm. part of the natural cycle of music mm. uh, and i think all the better for it i mean as soon as we think we know what's what's working it's time for something new to come along were you a zeppa fan you don't strike me <laughs> I, I, well, that's interesting i yeah. one of my favorite gigs I, I went to i went to two of the nebworths and one of those had frank zappa wow. also had the tubes which was a fun, that, yeah. that was an awesome experience. The tubes on stage. Well, this is a good segue because I was going to say to you, I, I wanted to talk to you. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it um, off tape a while ago when I first met you, but I'm interested to know about some of the kind of formative live experiences you've you've been part of as an audience yeah. member. So, oh, oh, right. There's there's several ones that really. Yeah. When we were talking about Kate Bush last yeah. night. Yeah. Um, I saw. Kate's only tour. Wow. I saw her. In fact, I nearly didn't see her. I wanted to tell you this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mate had got tickets to see him to see her at Oxford. We were living in Watford, which is sort of northwest London. So it was up the A40 then. It's now a motorway. But anyway, he got tickets, um, and we turned up at the theatre, and they'd oversold the gig. So when we arrived, they hadn't got enough seats for us. <laughs> we ended up watching that show. In fact, it was the best because we were probably the best seats in the house. I went and sat in the in the aisle just off the stage wow. just i basically moved up and down the steps because they weren't going to move me around yeah yeah so i basically got myself an optimum position in wow. one of the aisles and i had you know i had all the space i needed and that was probably one of that and the i kate bush doing that i was 18 when i saw that and i was completely blown away more for the fact that I knew that the woman on stage was the same age that I yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, um, I know. And she was dancing. She was singing. There was, there was, there was mime. There was yes. fabulous staging. The lights were phenomenal. Oh, She'd done it yeah. all. I mean, I've watched it. I mean, the whole show was on. You know, first there was the tour doco, and then there was the official concert film. But the whole, the wonderful world of YouTube brings us the whole yeah. performance now. And I watched it again recently, a couple of times. Just went, you know, this, this really was a mind-blowing show for anyone who got to see it but you're the first person i've met that can tell me you actually went and saw it i, I mean I, we were at, i went home in a state of shock mm. um and i've always and i and i've always loved those first two or three albums i yeah i mean i think i owned them at one point i mean i've i've, I've bought and sold two record collections i think over the yeah, years yeah yeah and i've lost as many records as i've owned and i don't own any anymore because i, I I have got I don't live anywhere. At the yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do, but I don't have. I don't have a, yeah, yeah. a place permanent enough yeah. to have a record collection. But certainly that Kate Bush gig. I think my dad's company, which was based in Sheffield for a while, so I was already late teens, early twenties, started to promote gigs at the Crucible, and they brought over people like John Sebastian, who I saw. They're in a very intimate setting, which was a phenomenal wow, experience. Yeah. Just him and a guitar and a banjo. Yeah. What a brilliant songwriter yeah. he was. I saw Dizzy Gillespie. I was literally as close to Dizzy Gillespie <laughs> as I am with you. Wow. And that was a very wet experience. <laughs> it was a phenomenal <laughs> yeah. experience. Man, yeah. you could not only hear this incredible music, but the feel of it. Yeah. I mean, that was an awesome experience. Yeah. I think... Um, so then we go to the Nebworths, and I, I saw the Stones, who were rubbish. I saw... Um, 
I saw Leonard Skinner do a 15-minute version. It's the version that's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting at the front underneath the trees. Yeah. And it was a beautiful sunny afternoon. It was an August day. And Leonard Skinner come on. I had no idea who they were. I was, again, 18, same year mm. I saw um, Kate Bush. And we're all laying in the sun. It's, sun. it's a sunny, sunny afternoon. We're chilling out, listening to the music. We had a few beers. And then that, you know, fabulous solo. Mm. Freebird starts up mm. and he's going and he, he sort of finds his way to the front of the stage and after five minutes we're all sitting up and it carries on and after ten minutes we're standing up and after about 15 minutes the whole place has got you know 80 to 100,000 people going mm. absolutely in just completely losing their minds mm. in this moment you know and you, you you've lost sight of where you are you've lost sight of who you are you're just caught up in this incredible surge of of, of creative energy mm. it's a phenomenal experience that's why we all miss live concerts yeah the thing of the thing that's you know if you're lucky enough to have been to a lot of live concerts as as, as we both have you you can actually find new favorite things in the moment now you might never want to go away and listen to them no. you know you might not want to have the record no but um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't an extraordinary live performance. And, and, and of course, some of your favourite acts that you have spent so many thousands of hours listening to can blow you away, of course. Yeah. But they, you can also feel a little bit let down by some of them as well. And that's what's that's what's interesting, right? The the every the the opportunity that every live show is going to carry something slightly different about it is what's exciting to me about always trying to see live shows oh yeah. you know mean, i've been a little bit burnt out and jaded over the years from going to you know six shows a, a week for a few weeks in a row and things like that and then other times i think fuck how lucky have i been yeah you know to yeah. have to have seen these things absolutely and especially to have seen most of them without even leaving wellington let alone new zealand you yeah. know i go into i was in the michael fowler center for the first time in a year the, uh, the other week watching bill bailey and i thought god the fucking shows i've seen just in this building yeah you know and just such a disparate bunch of things from yeah. Clannard to Tracy Chapman to you know Richard Clayderman things I don't even care about or like yeah. but it's it's all part of my knowledge and who I am and yeah. my record collection and oh absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean for me that I mean the other the, the, I suppose the two other moments that are popping into my head would be Wilco Johnson who opened oh yeah in 76 and him, he had one of the, the uh, it's the first time I'd seen it, is one of those big, really long, coiled guitar leads. It's the, it was before radio mics. Mm -mm. And he had one that was long enough so we could roam up and down. The, oh, and he yeah. was roaming up and down this massive stage. Yeah. Just him being Wilco Johnson with his huge, big guitar lead, yeah, just yeah. roaming up and down, just growling at everybody. Buddy Guy used to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I yeah, saw yeah, Buddy yeah, Guy yeah. three times. Oh, wow. my. Now, you, now you're starting me <laughs> off. But the, I think the one that I will... I will always cherish, and if I and if it, and, and if it was the one gig that I, if I could say I could, I'd keep, and that would be Tom Waits performing yeah. in '82 wow. in London. Now and, I know you're a Tom Waits fan oh, because, I'm a massive because before Waits. before I met Samina and before I knew that you guys were related and knew each other, um, I saw you perform at the Fringe Bar, and you did your Tom Waits poem piece. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, this guy, you know, not only did I think that was cool, but I was just like, well, you only write something like that if you're a massive fan. I mean, my, my Tom Waits journey was, a, was an interesting when I was in bed with the flu in, again, it's 1978 is a big year for me. I was mm. 18 that year. Mm. I was in bed with the flu and my three mates, um, we used to dress up. We used to go to, to um, we used to go to Jumble Sales, which are the forerunners of op shops here. And we, I never, I didn't wear a pair of jeans until I was 22. 
we were we were we had very strong opinions about how we dress and we used mm. to dress up deliberately to annoy people um i mean i i once went to a punk gig dressed up within a three-piece italian pinstripe <laughs> suit and winkle pickers uh, and i was and i and i did it quite deliberately because i wanted to stand out because mm. everybody else was in bin bags um and anyway so that's when i my friend walked in through the door he was wearing a very smart gray suit as i recall uh, ironically and he handed me this album which was blue valentine and we put it on the record i was ill i was i think i might have been drinking some vodka um which was that's another story um and i heard kentucky avenue mm. and i heard um blue valentine and i and, and, and that that again was like I'm 18 years old. The, this man is singing about a life I have no experience of, and yet I feel I understand it. I've got an access to it. And then I saw him perform basically a lot of that album live. Wow! On stage, complete with a a, a hopper bar, a diner bar. Mm. He had a, a street light. I wish I knew the name of the saxophonist. He's a really old guy. So Tom comes on stage and he pours himself a drink and he sits down at the piano and he's got a cigarette on the go and he starts playing and he's, he's chatting with the audience and doing Tom Waits. And there's a single spotlight on the other side of the stage and there's this old guy with a saxophone and he's slumped over his saxophone and he's got a street light behind him. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of staging. Mm. And Tom Waits is chatting and joking and, you know, being drunk or sounding drunk. Yeah, I don't think he was yeah. ever as drunk as he yeah, reckoned yeah, he was. Yeah. It was all of that. And he's sitting chain smoking and he's in a... And I, and all, and, and I thought, is that saxophone player actually alive? Mm. Is he dead? Has he died on stage? Because he didn't move. Mm. And then, about... I can't remember which track it was. About the third song of the set, the saxophone moves. He didn't move. The saxophone moved. He just twitched it in his hands and started playing. Oh, my God. The only thing that spoiled that gig were two Americans who whooped in every silence. Mm. At one point, my mate who was with me got up to hit them. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, interesting what you were saying about Blue Valentine because I was thinking, uh, I was going to jump in and go, I think I might have told you this, but I was going to jump in and say, that's the first album of Tom Waits I heard. And then what I realised when you were telling your story was, you know, many years later... I'm 18 when I hear that, or might have been 19, but you know, it's the same, that same, exact same experience relative to me, where I go, this is a voice and a point of view I feel like I've known my whole life, yeah. and I feel like I identify with, yeah. and, I, and I don't, yeah. this is not my experience no, at all, not. but it is the experience that I crave from, you know, reading Kerouac, and yeah. from, you know, listening to Captain Beefheart, and yeah. from, and and all of these things and I was, when you were saying you know I don't think Tom was ever quite as drunk as you know I think one of his great influences is actually Foster Brooks you know I think you know the comedian who faked being drunk I yeah. think that's that's in there for Tom I think you know well, cause, the piano has been drinking is a classic exactly, comedy song because he's because he's because he's a comedian and an actor yeah. as much as he's a musician, you know, and a songwriter. There is that, you know, and when when he did those shows with the elaborate staging, it's because, you know, it, he thought conceptually around how to present this yeah. this character. Because uh, I think I'm right in saying, you know, the Tom White story is largely one of him presenting himself as an earnest songwriter and a piano man and basically being missed out, like he basically got looked over. Yeah. And uh, he, he had the bad luck to uh, try and be a piano-based singer-songwriter in the year that Billy Joel and Elton John <laughs> broke both broke yeah. big. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. And then he so he has to go away and reinvent himself. And that's that's shorthand, but that's basically it. 
I, I mean, I, I, I love the Tom Waits story because the first, the first thing you have to remember is that Tom Waits came from a very stable, happy family. Mm. Uh, I think his father was a teacher or a Which doctor. Which is like the Kate Bush thing. It, yeah, exactly. Where does this come from? Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, yeah, yes, he did, he did have two, um, two rooms in a cheap Hollywood uh, motel that was his home for a while while he was mm. writing on. Mm. But, I mean, he, I mean, if you look at, some of his, I mean, I heard, when I first was introduced to him, someone said to me that in his early days, people used to think before his voice got really growly, he sounded like an early Frank Sinatra. Mm. And, you know, and if you listen to some of those early oh, albums... Oh, Heart of Saturday Night. Ah, that album's beautiful. Just. I mean, yeah. that's a jazz album. Yeah, that's, it that's is. Not blue. It is, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to... Um, I mean, by the time Blue Valentine comes out in 1970, 78, I think it was, and I can't yeah. remember whether the small change was before or after. That's just I, before. That was yeah. just before. Yeah, before. And But he'd been on the road for six, nearly seven years, mm. just touring with his mm. band, doing the local... T- I mean, if you look at him, or a lot of his footage on YouTube, it's him turning up to morning or afternoon TV yeah, shows yeah, in, yeah. in Hicksville, USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're not quite sure what they're dealing with. Because, yeah, yeah. of course, he's taking the piss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and pumping out the material, too. Like, it's a busy 1970s for him. You know, I mean, it's an album a year. I mean, he was. I mean, it's. A, I mean, I. I can. I can. But I can't. I, mean, I was. I was looking. I was listening to um, your. Um the show you did on RNZ yesterday mm. about Kate Bush and, and, and actually remembering her output for someone who used to disappear for two or three or even yeah. six years at a time yeah. have a phenomenal creative output. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. Whether or not you like it. Similar or... sort of thing, actually. Yeah, Absolutely. That's it. Yeah, and then Absolutely. go away and rethink and just... And also go away and both of them, go away and just be yourself out of the spotlight. Have yeah. your personal life yeah. as your own. Because people don't know much about Tom Waits because you know, he doesn't let us. No. And uh, so he lets us know about the inverted commas Tom Waits, the character. But, you know, the fact that his wife, who has been his creative partner for 40 years, there are a couple of photographs of her on the internet kind of thing. You know, it's like she's, she's... protected yeah. in a really nice way and Absolutely. so they have their family life which yeah. is incredible yeah. I mean I like to think every time I drive past Carlucci Land in Wellington I think that's probably where Tom Waits lives you know I'm some fucking junkyard yeah. but no, he's that's got, not I, the I mean, case I, I, mean, I, I imagine he's got a ranch I, I yeah, imagine he's yeah, got yeah. a number of places yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I've, I've always harboured the, when, when I wrote the, the poem Tom Waits I actually tried to see if I could track him down and find and mm. find a way of saying here you go. I've written. I've written this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, would you, you know, would you be interested? I yeah. mean, it's a huge arrogance on my part, but I thought, why not? Hey, I'm sixty. I'll give it a go. I mean, yeah. perhaps you'll take pity on me. Um, you know, I would love. To, I would love. I'm, I'm actually going to that that poem that you've talked about is now become a duet in a, a show that I'm writing, and actually, the 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 character who reads the Tom Waits part is a four foot six Indian woman. <laughs> which adds a certain comedic element yes, to the yes. But without going into details, we, we, we don't want, let's not labour that point. But no, <laughs> um, I, I just, yeah, Tom Waits. I mean, we're coming back to, to, to influences. Yeah. It would be Tom Waits. But also, I used to go out, my, my, I had a great relationship with both my, well, my mum's still with us. Um, she's 84 this year. My, we lost my father a few years ago. But he and I used to go out all through my teenage years and listen to live music. My dad used to love sitting in front of a, of a, of a local jazz band, drinking beer, and the two of us would sit there and set the world to rights. Mm. So I had an, an amazing teenage years. I was ever out with my dad drinking. Not necessarily the best thing, but we, were, we never got into any serious trouble. Um, and um, just listened to live music. And he loved listening to live jazz. 
Um, and that, so again, that, my formative years were spent, I listened to some phenomenal performers, none of whom whose names I can remember, mm -hmm. but I can certainly remember the, made, the way they made me feel. So when I'm, you know, as a, come back to me as a, as a live performer, which is my first, my first love is performing live. I'm not a great fan of recording. I don't mind, I like writing, but I, the, the recording process, you know, can we, can we do it once and there's, you know, can we go and get a coffee now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never been a great lover of sitting in a studio for extended periods of time, which is probably why I haven't recorded some. I've got loads of material sitting waiting to be done. But coming back to performing live, I want the audience to feel the way I did when I was out with my dad, which was, we're having a great night tonight, this, this is interesting, or, oh, I, I didn't think that you know where's that one or where's that voice from or, or what's that song about you know that's mm. what i i want the i want to be engaged with an audience you know I've, I've spent a lot of my adult life providing a soundtrack to someone else's piss up but you know and that's partly how i earn my living yeah, yeah. but when i'm performing in fe you know at festivals or in clubs and i'm actually playing as dr blue not noisy man in corner mm. um, i describe it as shouting at people for a living which is basically <laughs> what i do but when i'm performing you know in, in say clubs or, or on the occasional festival gig i get i want to engage with my audience i want to have a conversation and i, and I want them to go away f having experienced something akin to what i had mm. which was this is a unique experience i have maybe thought about something i've had a nice time i might not even understand what's happened mm. but I'm, I'm i'm glad i've been here and that's kind of my agenda as a as a performer whether it's poetry or whether it's music um i feel like we should have a poem of yours do you want to do the tom waits one or do you want to save that since that's being reworked into a show no i don't mind doing yeah, it i yeah. mean it's it's um let's yeah let's, let's let's do the tom this is this is called blue valentine yeah um and I don't like to introduce my poems. I mean, I've probably yeah. said more about this today than I, I know. have ever. <laughs> I know, I was, I was in two minds. Before, uh, you know, a minute ago, I was just going to say, well, you need to read us the poem now. And then I thought, no, oh, maybe we'll just let that sit and let people imagine it. But I think okay. it'll be cool. Blue Valentine. Blue Valentine All the way from Philadelphia To mark the anniversary of someone I used to be The ghost of your memory Hang on a minute. You're Tom Waits, I said. I sure am. But what are you doing here, I said. I'm not here. Then what are you doing in my head, I said. I'm not in your head, son. You're dead. Then why am I talking to you if I'm dead, I said. I'm God! But I don't believe in you, I said. Tom tipped his hat, opened his arms wide and shrugged. I'm God to you. But that doesn't make any sense, I said. Who's, whose words did you remember when you last closed your eyes? Blue Valentine. Oh, so that's why I'm here, I said, because I was singing Blue Valentine when... Yeah. So... I said, if I was singing, say, the hills are alive with the sound of music, you would be a 20-year-old nun. Yeah. Thank God, I said. You're welcome. Thank God I wasn't humming Justin Bieber, I said. Would you like me to be Justin Bieber? No, I said. God forbid, I said. I don't forbid, son. That's a human thing. I prefer to live and let live. So what happens now? I said. Well, that's kind of up to you. 
I'm sitting in a railway station, got a ticket for my destination. Mm -hmm. On a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand. And ever a stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. Homeward bound, I wish I was. <laughs> See, I've heard you perform there maybe three times now. And obviously that's my favourite because you did that in the moment just for me you did it for people listening yeah. but you did that just for me but yeah no that's a great piece there and so how did that come about as a piece of writing I understand why you did it yeah. but um, how long did it take to create that in that way like did, like it, a did lot it just gush out <laughs> uh, uh, well yes it's one mm. of the it's one of a number of poems I'm, I particularly enjoy performing mm. and love uh, that came very quickly I was uh Back in the UK, where Samina and I were living, we had a flat which was one block away from the seafront. Um, and I would, my daily routine, if I wasn't touring, was would be I'd go for a walk. And I used to love walking by the sea. So I love living here in Wellington because mm. the sea is very accessible. Mm. And I was walking along and I sat down and I suddenly had a thought, which was, I wonder what would happen if I met Tom Waits. And then I had a thought, I don't know why, I suddenly started singing Blue Valentine. And I suddenly, and I sat down, I always have a notebook with me, and I just suddenly sat and I tried to imagine when I would meet Tom Waits <laughs> mm. and what the conversation would be. Mm. And that's kind of what happened. And, and it more or less came out as not fully formed and fine. It yeah. came, the idea was there. Yeah. And, so, and it basically was, so you're on the point of death, what's your last thought? Mm. And, and for me in that moment, it was be... I'm, I'm probably singing something. It's nice because it's in the um, certainly in a tradition I identify with anyway, and and feel like I've uh, explored. You've written a poem in tribute to someone, but um, it tells us more about you than it tells us about that person. You know, it tells us okay. a whole lot yeah. about your yeah. who you are, yeah. what you like. Yeah. You know, it's still a tribute to Tom Waits. Yes. But it's a tribute to Tom Waits that's telling us how much he means to you yes. and who you are as a person. Yes. Yeah. But also the influence of Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, yeah. I, I, grew, I mean, in my yeah. in my teens, I listened to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel, and I can still play quite a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah. Because it was a it was a stand when I was working the bars in the late seventies and early eighties, you had to have a couple of Simon and Garfunkel songs under your belt. Yeah, they sort of um, speak to everyone, those songs, don't oh, they? And, and still you know, do. I, I mean, think, yeah. fabulous, like, like all good songwriters, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it lives. You know. But they bridge the, they really do bridge the generations, I think. Oh, those, good those Lord. songs of his. Yeah. Because they feel like some of, her, some of the, the S&G songs from the 60s, to a kid now, they might think, shit, that's some old song from the 1940s or 50s, but they love it. Yeah. Or they might go, oh... That's in the 80s or 90s because that's when their parents were playing it. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. I mean, that, actually, that brings up an interesting point about how how music moves from generation to generation. Mm. Um, somebody, I did a radio interview for the festival I'm doing next weekend. Um, and they asked me, um, do you think the way that music's consumed... Um, is good or bad for the music industry mm. I, I think that was the quote I paraphrase mm. and I said well actually what, what's happened is is I mean I remember my ch listening to my children's iPods which of course are now yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody listens to it, yeah. so, but my children all had huge massively yeah. massive iPods with, yeah. which could have 20,000 songs on and most and they all had 
huge collections. Mm. And when we used to drive anywhere, I'd say, well, give us your iPod, we'll plug it into the car. You know, what, you know, you DJ me while I'm playing. And I used to get the kids to basically play me music. And I was, my daughter particularly, or my child, they're now non-binary, um, would be playing, oh, I don't know, Bessie Smith, Ella Fitzgerald, um, uh, All Along the Watchtower, you know, all the, all the really mm. great rock classics mm. and, and, and the jazz classics from the 30s and 40s. And this was part of their... I mean, I got, they had a lot of modern stuff that I probably couldn't remember and wouldn't mm. know. Mm. But that they were listening to that music. And, of course, what's happened is, I mean, it's not a great thing for us producers yes. of, of, of musical or creative outputs because it's very difficult to make any money from it anymore, particularly if we're selling it. Um, but what does mean is, is it's accessible. Mm, mm. and I think that's the plus or the downside of, of, of the current situation is that you literally can listen to almost anything now online yeah. and not necessarily have to pay for it yeah, yeah, the downside yeah. of that is, is, is if, if you listen to 2,000 downloads of my last single I will earn 50 cents yeah yeah. thank you for listening by the way <laughs> the 2,000 people worldwide who listened to my last single um, but I'm not going to be buying a Ferrari anytime soon no but we have to you have to Think about it in the context that those people might find you in the street with your guitar case open and give you some money. Those people might, might go to your pub gig or yeah. theatre gig yeah, yeah. or buy your poetry chapbook yeah. if you happen to be selling, you know, and yeah. that's and that's the long game that has to be pursued now, right? Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing that interests me, there's a lovely story about the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and I think it was the Tremolos, was sitting in a, in a green room backstage of one of those big sort of um, tours that they used mm. to do together before the Beatles exploded and didn't tour with other people. Um, and they were all comparing how little money they were making um, because in those days they did sell lots of records um, but vast majority of that money, particularly in the first couple of tours, mm. would pay the record company back for the advance you had. Mm. And a lot of acts never never made money after, you know, they, they, they had a couple of good years and they did, weren't able to produce the, the bulk of material that would sell. Of course, the Beatles, the only reason the Beatles made any money was because they sold so many records and the percentages they were on made a difference. Mm. The mm. same with people like Led Zeppelin and, you know, we know the mm. story. But the thing is, for me, is that the difference now is, is that you're not reliant on an, ex, an external agency. You touched upon it earlier. Anybody can, I mean, most people's computers have got more technology than they were using in the 60s. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I still get quite intimidated when I'm in the studio. And if, if, if one of my strings went out of tune, they can adjust that by a twiddle of a knob. Didn't they land the uh, rocket on the moon with less computer wear than what we carry in our pocket on our phone? Well, no, it's, it's even smaller than <laughs> yeah, that. It's yeah. an electronic yeah, watch. Yeah. It's got a bigger processing capacity <laughs> than the computer that went to the moon. So... I, so for me, I'm very optimistic about the music business and, the, and performing arts in general because it is very democratic. Mm. I think the, to, to get political, and I am very political in terms of, of, of how, how we, we arrange inclusivity and also access, is that we do need to make sure that everybody has access to our art forms because they're still predominantly white, um, let's be honest. Mm. Um, and there is a huge raft of talent that just gets lost or disappears elsewhere. And that's fine if it's their choice. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the number of young performers who I've seen who do not fit, well, basically this, you know, yeah, privileged yeah. white, middle-aged, university-educated... I can ski, I'm middle-class, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so, but I am very much aware of my privilege. And, and I think we do have this technology, which, is, which people can access. 
but it's about how do we get those people in front of, of audiences because I think that's the interesting place that's the interface that interests me mm. as a performer mm. um, and as someone who wants to encourage other artists because mm. you know the last thing I want to do is to see the next generation of performers look anything or sound anything like me you know yeah <laughs> yeah so another thing that interests me about you is you came to New Zealand you like like all of us you survived um, lockdown just fine yeah like like many of us yep. um, and then you just burst out of the gates and start booking shows hitting up street corners to play um, booking practice rooms to rehearse material and you've already been around a large part of the country yes. when the levels have allowed yes um, probably twice. I'm on my second turn Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, there we go. So you just went for it. I mean, it's in your blood and you know to do it. And yes. it's what you, it's the calling. It's what yes. you want to do. Yes. But um, how have you found our audiences to be? I know I know. in some cases you've, you've played in venues before. It's not your very first rodeo. But now you're going out and meeting um, venue owners and audiences for the first time in some places. How, how have we been? Well, actually, this is the second time. Well, actually, this is the third time I've done this, mm. um, technically speaking. Um, but it's the third time I've done it, so I, I know how to do it. Mm. I'm basically refining the business model I had when I, I, I left the band and went solo, which was I play as much and as often as possible, whether that's a street corner, whether it's a bar, whether it's a club, whether it's a festival, if I can mug my way on, mm. um, and get people to hear me. Because most people, if they like the music that I do, if they hear me perform it, they will book me again. So basically, my business model in the UK, and this doesn't sound very artistic, but my business model is essentially get as many people to hear me as possible because mm. they'll book me and give me a paid gig. Get, that, get in front of people's ears. Get in front of people's ears. So that's what I've done. So in terms of, I mean, that's what I've done here. As soon as I got my work visa, I wouldn't work here without one. Mm, mm. I got my work visa and as soon as I had it, I'd already sent out emails to something like 60 venues. I googled all the venues in the in, in New Zealand that advertise yeah. live music and sent them a press release and some and some links and mm. said, I'm here, are you interested? Mm. My first surprise, so to answer your question is <laughs> how, how the audiences react, the people who were responding answered universally yes. Two venues said no. They obviously, I think one was a heavy metal venue mm. and one was a, 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 it wasn't a, it wasn't a blues venue. And they all said either, yes, can you do these dates, call us back next year, or we're not scheduling at the moment, or we'll get back to you. So I suddenly realised that there is a, the, the, there's, an, there's an audience here for what yeah, I do. there's a potential for an opening. There's a potential <laughs> opening. So um, I then went out and did every gig that I was offered, um, even, if it, even if it meant potentially losing a little bit of money. But I was happy to subsidise it just to get going. Um, and we're now at the point where I'm going out and, and it's, it's paying for itself, which is great. The audiences are there's three audiences that i've come across there is uh, a mature 50 plus audience that remember most of the bands and most of the music that influence what i do mm. so they recognize it and they seem to like it so the folk clubs i've done the folk clubs quite a lot and they they seem to like i take i don't do the very loud raucous blues i tend to go more my singer songwriter palette mm. and that goes down well in the folk clubs um, the blues goes down well in the bars because it's high energy and it's and it's it's a bit like rock and roll to be honest but that's where rock mm. and roll came from mm, mm. so that goes down very well so the young folks they look at me a bit surprised because they usually look at me and go where's that voice coming from mm. which is what quite a few people do and I don't know is the answer all I know is I've got it mm. thank 
wherever it comes from. Thank Tom Waits. Thank Tom Waits. <laughs> um, but if in a neat, so the the audiences are generally very warm. A few people look a bit startled, and a, quite a few people come up to me and say, "What kind of music is that?" And that makes me very happy because mm. I say, "Well, this is basically early you get blues." To put your school teacher I, hat I put back my on. school hat back on. I go right. Let's have a chat about the expropriation of, of black culture by by the white music business in America in the nineteen fifties. Uh, and then usually I get one of two reactions, which is, "Oh, you're one of those political people. I don't want to talk to you yeah, anymore." Yeah. Or that's into tell me, more. Tell me, tell me more. even more. Tell yeah. me even, please continue with your lecture <laughs> yeah. or your TED talk. Yes. Um, so. Generally speaking, the audiences here are very generous, they're very warm, they're very friendly. They can be a little bit reserved at first because I can be a bit full on. Mm. Um, and also because I make a point of talking to people before a gig. So the person that's talking to you is not the performer that gets on stage. And sometimes people have, get a bit of a disconnect because that is a character. Mm. Particularly mm. the blues. Dr. Blue, yes. who I blues, perform, yeah, yeah. Is, 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 I now realise is more of a character than me, isn't yeah. me? Um, and I like to play with Dr. Blue. Yeah. And Dr. Blue likes to play with his audience. But it does mean when I step off the audience, it can be a bit confusing in my head because it's a bit like um, having a mental illness. Is that um, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure who I am sometimes. Mm. I don't know if that helps with the performance or not. I don't know. <laughs> and um, so you're about to, as we speak, I mean, this, this will go out for people to hear a little bit after this, but as we speak, you're about to jump on the theory the next tomorrow tomorrow and yep. you're going to go and play a bunch of shows down south yes that's right and then what is the plan after that right i've up? got i'm in omaru to do the harbour street jazz and blues i've got three sessions over this weekend mm. i then come i come back via performing on the ferry because there's a great system yeah, here yeah, if you yeah. can book yourself in early enough you get a free ride on the ferry if you perform in the bar. Yeah. And for, for, for touring musicians, that's quite a big deal. Yeah, because it's practice. It's also practice. As, as well as saving, that's right. And, and, and it saves me 60 bucks. Yeah, Thank yeah. you very much, Intro Island Ferry. And and it introduces you to some people. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, I, I never miss an opportunity for people to, to you know. Yeah. You know, my business, I go back to my business yeah. model. I get in front of as many. And to be honest, most times I perform, People, at least one person comes up and says, I've got a friend who books. Because mm. the other thing about mm. it's fabulous about New Zealand yeah. is everybody knows everybody. Yeah, yeah. so someone's um, neighbour or cousin owns a bar or That's it. plays yeah. in a band or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. how I got the gig at Picton. I'm doing yeah. a gig in Picton at Le Cafe, which yeah. is on the front there. Yeah. Um, I'm actually sharing it with another blues man called Moondog, I, I found out this week. Then yeah. That's how this town, this, how this country worked. <laughs> I thought I'd book myself in for a gig, and then the quote says, oh, Moondog's around, you fancy doing a duo? <laughs> yeah, why not? We'll give it a go. So yeah. he and I are going to do a two-hander. I don't know how that's going to work. Come along and find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so that's it. But your question was, what's next? Yeah. For me, I'm, I'm now quite happy that I can work here. I think I'm going to reach a threshold fairly soon, um, which is going to... I think I'm probably going to go out once or twice a year to do what I'm doing at the moment. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group of slightly bigger venues that I'd like to try and get into. Um, something like... I'd like to play the, the gig in the, in the Botanical Gardens, for mm. example, something like that. So that I'll be focusing on those and some more festivals for next year. I think the what I call my bread and butter tour is pretty much established. I want to explore Auckland and north of Auckland, but I think I've found where I'm going to be playing. Mm. Beyond that is another album. Um, I'm going to write an album. I'm going to basically unpack the <laughs> the lost Silent yeah, Man album yeah. and probably record that with percussion and either a cello or double bass and do something more jazzy, a bit more experimental. 
Next year, um, there is a couple of shows. If the borders open up, we're almost certainly going to get my friend over and we mm. will tour Mosaic, which is a spoken word show. I will need to go back to the UK. Um, I've got a standing project to do with an amazing Belgian guitarist called Nico G. And we've been writing during lockdown. So we're writing an album together. He's a, a phenomenal acoustic guitarist, um, can play any style you care to mention and a few he's made up. He's a brilliant blues guitarist. And he and I decided that we were, this is one of the projects of 2020. Mm. So I'm gonna go back and do that. I'm I'm on I, I do a bit of musical directing work with producers so there's a couple of um, there's a comic, a comic um, well, I shouldn't name um, for contractual reasons and there is um, another Australian producer who I work with on one of their cabaret shows so if if the festival seat lit and starts up again I'll go mm. back and do those in the UK and I will then event that and I will have fulfilled the ambition that Samina and I had which is to live in perpetual summer. So mm. I'll do the I'll do the UK tour in May, June, July, and August. Come back here via a holiday, and then do the summer tour here. Mm. In writing, um, writing poetry books, is there more of that to come? Like, will you publish? There's a whole no. There's a whole again, book waiting. Or, yeah. Um, I've got. I have a file on my computer which at the moment has got about 30, 35 pieces on it, all of which need work on them. So I think to do, what I'm going to need is a secondment from, from touring, mm. which is why I came here originally a year mm, ago to mm. have two months off to do some writing. So I think in terms of the way things are going, I will be looking at probably uh, a break of a month, maybe two, it might be this Christmas, this next Christmas and just go and hide away and do some writing because that, 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 that re that's a different skill set and that mm. requires silence and not, not too many interruptions and mm. I'm very easily distracted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the attention span of a gnat. Yeah. Um, but I am, I am right. And so next year it's going to be Irish Jimmy, which is the storytelling show in some form, Mosaic, which is a spoken word show, and then probably an album. Mm. Mm. And that should be enough. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, but I'm I'm very I'm very good at people ring me up and say, "Do you fancy?" And I'll go. I look at my diary and think, "Yeah, we'll do that." Because I'm 60 this year and mm. I'm doing what I love. Uh, and there's a you know the tox the clock is ticking. I've got rid of any residual anxieties or insecurities I might have. Mm. I, I hope I'm not sounding arrogant, but I, I like what I do and I love yeah. to do it. And I know where I can do it now. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's what I want to be doing. There's nothing. I don't have any other reason to do anything else. Uh, unless something more exciting comes along, this is what I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable future until I can't walk anymore. Mm, mm. Um, but we've had a nice chat. Do you want to play something to... Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Yeah. Is I had hoped to send you, because I've just recorded a single, Yeah. which will eventually go on to the, mm. the, the now lost Silent Man up. I'm just um, going to shut the door to block out our cicadas a tiny bit. So you get yourself ready and... And this is called Pay the Devil is Jews. It was one of the tracks that was going to be on um, the Lost Album. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of my favourites I play in my set, and I'm going to be playing it this weekend. And I've just recorded it as a single. Unfortunately, the track notes are not embedded, so I can't, <laughs> I can't release it because the records, the radio stations like to have the track notes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Pay the Devil is Jews.
I'm gonna pull on my gray suit <laughs> With my old felt hat I'm going down To my favorite bar I'm gonna buy me a shot of Jack I should lose I tell you all I got the blues I'm still playing Playing with the devil's dues I said I'm an old junkyard dog <laughs> Howling at the stars Yeah, I'm walking through the fence at the passers-by And the people driving in their cars I share the news I tell you all why I got the blues I'm still playing Playing with the devil So I have to say that uh, that was co-written by Samina. Ah, nice. Well, uh, that, that's very good because uh, I was thinking I should tell you that you're not the first, but you you join a very exclusive club of um, creative husband and wife partner duos in Wellington that have both had separate appearances on this podcast. There are a couple of others, but I think there are only three in total. Right. 
yeah, so that's quite a nice way to finish. <laughs> that's a fabulous way to finish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.